my dad would cook for him and all the guides lived in this little we called it the mouse mahal i mean it was just a little rundown shack I'm kind of an addictive person if i ever get on drugs i feel like it's over <laughs> Alright everybody, thanks for tuning in. We got a one of our most requested guests on by far. Every time we ask who folks want to see or who they'd like to hear from, there's at least uh two people, and it's usually different people, and some of you guys are the same that keep beating the drum, but there's at least a couple people that always ask about getting Jeff Sharan on uh the podcast. So today we have Jeff on. Uh Ira and I have been wanting to do this for a while as well, and things lined out today. We couldn't be more excited, and if you guys, uh, a lot of you guys know who Jeff is, and he has a page, Facebook page, The Bottoms on Facebook, that a lot of you guys reference whenever you write in, that you follow along with, that, you know, so you guys know who Jeff is, and and you're going to find out a lot more about him. We all are going to find out a lot more about him, hopefully, on this um, on this podcast. Jeff, thank you very much for making time to to visit with us. Well, I'm glad it worked out uh, that we get together. Absolutely. Ira, I know you're looking forward to it also. Oh, yeah, I'm just sitting here kind of smiling a little bit because, uh, you know, Jeff has a Facebook page and uh, very active on email and all that stuff. And I remember when the Internet first came out, he said, I'm not getting on that stupid Internet. Who would waste their time doing that? <laughs> well, times change. Actually, um, it was my grandsons who set up the the Facebook page. And um, it just seemed like it was such an easy way to for all of us to keep in touch so we knew what we were doing. Rather than have to make six phone calls, you could just put it on your Facebook and everyone knew it. Somebody pointed out the other day that there were more than 1,000 people looking on our little Facebook page, and I couldn't imagine that. I have no idea. Uh, who who all those folks are so let's start with a couple couple things that i we want to talk about you know this podcast fit, focuses on on business and entrepreneurship hunting obviously farming things like that um what talk a little bit about the bottoms first and what is the bottoms and where is it located well the bottoms is um a, a farm that uh, I've put together over the years. It's um, it started off in 1972. Uh, I bought 120 acres, principally as a hunting place. As time went on, I added acres, and we're we're at about 1,200 acres now. And um, it's a combination: a serious row crop farm. Um, we have some WRP on it and some restored wetlands of course so it's um uh it is a um uh, uh it's been a very good investment and it's been very enjoyable when um when i started thinking about how i was going to have enough money to retire uh i made a plan that i i wanted to purchase farm ground so that I could early enough so that I could have it paid for when I retired and so that my farm income would replace my paycheck uh, 
from my company. And um, originally I planned to start buying farm ground at age 40, pay for it in 20 years and retire at age 60. Well, for me, uh, age 40 was uh, 1980. And in 1980, uh, we were we could still remember $12 soybeans and um, and land prices had gone up, but cash rents had gone down and you just couldn't make a deal in 1980. So I had to wait until almost 1990, age 50, to uh, carry out my plan. Uh, and I did, uh, I'd been saving my money to have my down payment. And uh, at, in about 1990, 1989, I started putting together farm ground. And uh, that was probably the best uh, move that I ever made. So, uh, well, obviously, and it's crazy to see, you know, your story is unique, but it is also not unlike some others. Now, most people that put farms together, Jeff, were doing it before the age of 50 for sure. So that is, to me, that's a... That's just a, that's crazy that you put what you've put together in, I know, I know you've been, you know, I know you've been at it a while, but in a relatively short amount of time. And if I'm, if I know, if I'm thinking right, this is first generation as well. You, you, you weren't, uh, you weren't a farm family, were you, Jeff? Oh, oh no, I, I, uh, I went to high school in Kansas City and, and uh, actually moved uh, up here, um, uh, no central Missouri when I graduated from college. Tell us, tell us a bit about college and uh, and what you did in Irvin Built and all that. Well, Irvin Built was is the name of uh, uh, the company that I headed for a number of years. It's a general contracting business. I'd have to say I was pretty lucky because I knew what I wanted to do at a very early age. I, I, I knew I wanted to build things and I knew I wanted to be in the construction business. And so when I went to college, I enrolled in the engineering school, uh, hustled through there, did get out of there in four years, uh, went immediately to work for a company um, uh, up here in uh, Chillicothe, Missouri. Actually, that was my wife's uh, hometown. And um, I, I went to work for, for a friend of her father's who had no children um, and ended up buying the business and um, I had a 50-year career in the um, construction business. What were you building? What were you building? What, what and you might have said this, but what kind of construction was this primarily? Well, when I joined the firm, it was um, uh, a, a basically a, um, a commercial contracting business that built uh, commercial buildings, uh, high schools, grade schools, churches, shopping centers, and things like that. I felt like that end of the business got pretty competitive. Um, and so I wanted to move to a little more technical, uh, a little more difficult work, hopefully, so that we could attract better, uh, better profit margins. And so we moved into uh, the line of building 
municipal works such as water treatment plants, sewage treatment plants, power plants. And, and we, uh, I, I believe it would be fair to say, we became the leading builder of such works in, um, uh, in this region. So whenever you, so you took over, so, okay, so you take that job over, you buy that business. So while you own that business, that's around the time that the farms, that you started purchasing the farms, correct? You, you own that, that business and were active in it while you were purchasing the properties. Well, I actually started uh, purchasing stock in this company uh, in the early 70s. And as I said, it wasn't until the late 80s, early 90s that I seriously began putting together farm ground. I would have liked to have done it earlier, but the economics just weren't there. And, and you bought your core piece of the Bottoms property for hunting in 1973? 1972, Ira. 1972. Yes, sir, I did. I bought 120 acres for $20,000, and I borrowed every nickel. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you could get that out of it, Jeff. Pardon me? I bet you could get that out of it. Oh, I think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so... So you go, so you start, start with the bottoms in which I've been to the bottoms before and some people haven't, but some people that are listening might have, which piece did you buy first? Well, it was a L shaped 120 acres that really is situated squarely in the middle of it. Um, we added ground North of it, uh, East of it, West of it and South of it. Um, that piece was primarily timbered. Uh, the neat feature was that it had about a 15-acre old Oxbow Lake um, that we call Crescent Lake uh, that was an, a super good hunting spot, still is. So that You know, some stories that Jeff tells happened right here where we're sitting in Sumner um, back, you know, in the, in the days when this was a uh, the goose hunting area primarily, but there was some duck hunting. And, you know, a lot of the people that listen to these podcasts are pretty young. So I'm getting older and we always kind of make fun of ourselves for uh, for our lack of technology and all that stuff. But I want Jeff to tell some of the stories of when he was first starting to hunt and what they had to deal with as far as uh, getting around and, and all that stuff. So Jeff, tell us about like when you first started hunting, um, what that was like and, and where you guys hunted and how you got around and what you were doing. Well, you know, <clears throat> often I'm asked, uh, when did you start duck hunting? And, and I think about that. And, and the reality is that when I started hunting in the mid fifties, I was in high school. My dad was not a hunter. So I got kind of a late start, much later than, than my sons and my grandsons uh, have. Um, but, you know, we just went hunting. Um, we drove out of town and we got permission to hunt on a farm. And if we were walking down a hedgerow, we were quail hunting. If we were in a briar patch, we were rabbit hunting. If we were in the timber, we were squirrel hunting. If we were walking up the backside of a pond dam, we were duck hunting. <laughs> and, you know, we didn't have uh, Suburbans and Tahoes and 
we had sedans in those days and we'd come home with a trunk full of a mixed bag of all of those things. <laughs> so you, but, Oh, go ahead, Jeff. Well, I was going to say it, it, it was not until I was in college or, or after college that I really started a zeroing in seriously on waterfowl hunting. Um, I mean, the first waterfowl that I shot was a goose uh, right here, not, uh, not a mile and a half from where I'm sitting right now, 1960. Um, and and uh, we also did a lot of quail hunting in those days. Quail were plentiful. Um, gosh, the... <laughs> And when I think of uh, the the difference in what it was like in those days, the kind of ammunition we had, particularly the clothing we had, uh, our vehicles, um, you know, I thought it was a real step up when we started getting station wagons and we didn't have to take our dogs in the in the trunk. <laughs> uh, so, oh gosh, I ran across the other day. I, I was looking for something in my garage and I found an old tan canvas hunting jacket and and a shell vest that I had used probably in the 50s. And uh, both of them had the the uh, the old redhead label, which uh, now is uh, I think Bass Pro has. But I, I I just put up a hook in my bedroom at my in my cabin at the bottoms uh, to memorialize uh, the type of clothing we used to have to wear. So it was blue jeans, hooded sweatshirt, canvas jacket, um, and a canvas hat. Let, let me just ask a question. So today, if we wanted to go to Locust Grove, well, we could take a car, uh, a Ranger anything and go right up the gravel road in about oh three minutes and be up there to our pad and get in some other ranger or boat or whatever we want to do and and go wherever we wanted just paint a picture for us for what that would have been like when you first started hunting if we wanted to go to love Grove and go duck hunting oh well i i can't tell you how bad that road used to be i mean you would <laughs> You'd have a 50-50 chance of getting stuck in a in one of today's trucks, but in your car, you probably wouldn't have made it. Oh out of no, my we didn't. We didn't even try. No, <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, we were so limited. Uh, I don't remember even trying mud roads back in the 50s, maybe in the early 60s. I think I had my first uh, four-wheel drive vehicle was an old International Scout. And um, I probably had that in the late 60s. Um, in the early 70s, Chevy came out with the um, K5 Blazer. You used to have the old lockout hubs. If you wanted to put it in four-wheel drive, you had to get out and twist, uh, uh, twist the hubs to get them in. Um, and then that's been, a, that's been a gradual improvement. I think since then I've had a series I, I I've had a series of blazers and and suburbans and and now we have um, we have these ATVs uh, my goodness I don't even know how many rangers I have but uh, you know 
if you want to have two, you better, um, if you want to have two going, you better own three because one of them will be in the shop at all times. But I guess what, what I want to just mention without really getting into it too much is, you know, today's world, there's no secrets left anymore. I mean, back in the 60s, there was probably nobody that went back in there. And if you were, you were going to have to walk, right? Oh, or maybe yeah. take a three-wheeler, but that's doubtful. So the the animals had large swaths of, of property that probably never hardly even had anyone go back there. And now, I mean, whether you're in Arkansas or here or Florida or wherever, you know, there's nothing, there's no place that man can't go now. And uh, it's just a different world when it comes to access. Oh, our accessibility is uh, logarithmically better than uh, back in my day. Well, so... Speaking of, of that, so let's before we before we go off on this another path, let's let's say, Jeff, when did you when did you meet Ira for the first time? And let's kind of get into how you and some folk a guy that you knew kind of helped get Ira his property up here. Uh and and so take us from when you met Ira and how did you how did you get to meet him and how did that kind of start? Well, my son Greg and Ira are the same age. They uh, ended up uh, pledging the same fraternity at um, University of Missouri, probably in the mid to late eighties. What would when would that have been? Eighty six, Ira. No, we graduated high school in uh, eighty seven. In eighty seven. Okay, so um, Greg and Ira met um, September. Uh, of 87. Uh, they soon discovered they both liked to hunt. Um, Greg invited Ira to um, come up and go duck hunting with us, uh, probably in late October, early November of uh, 87. So that's when I first met Ira. I think um, uh, he soon became just like a member of our family. Uh, Ira had his own bedroom in our house. Uh, uh, when Ira graduated, he did a, from a vet, a vet school, he did an internship and, and uh, lived with us. So, uh, gosh, how long, what would that be? That'd be almost 40 years ago. Oh, right? my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I've been a veterinarian. I went through it the other day tw for 28 years. So. Oh, my goodness. You know, 28 plus uh, eight. All school. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Time flies. Yeah. So, so Ira came, Ira, so you came up, you probably felt like you hit the lottery on, I mean, I can, I remember being at college, you know, and you didn't know necessarily that many people or whatever. And you meet this dude and you show up to the bottoms. You had to be like, God dang, that's a pretty cool place. Oh, the bottoms are just so special. You know, it's such a, a neat place. Um, I mean, there's so much variety there and the cabin's cool. And, you know, these guys were super enjoyable to, hang out with and super knowledgeable and I mean definitely helped to you know shape uh my life and also me as a waterfowler from you know my uh my experiences that I'd had at my grandparents homes down in Texas and Louisiana you know it's a, a different deal and and uh yeah we just had fun man it was it was just such a cool place and um you were and deer, cool you deer hunted at the bottom too didn't you Ira Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, heck, I was an equal opportunist, just like Jeff. I'd 
I'd go after whatever I could and still am. You know me. <laughs> yeah, that's Both for sure. Woodcock, whatever. I'm I'm down. Down. What where do you where do you remember when you think back to hunting duck hunting at the bottoms? Where's kind of like if you could think of a hunt at the bottoms and somebody asked you to describe it, where would you think about hunting? Where was your favorite place to hunt there? Oh, well, I mean, Crescent Lake is is the cool coolest place that's there. Um, you know, it's just a, a beautiful setting um, in the woods, especially if you go early in the fall when the leaves still have some color. And, um, man, you know, we certainly saw plenty of beautiful flocks of, of all kinds of ducks, and it's just a, it's a beautiful setting. So how far, how far would you say, Jeff, that – um, just so our listeners can get an idea, they don't know Chillicothe from Ch- Chicago, s- uh, some of them. So how far is is um, the bottoms from Swan Lake, Fountain Grove? Uh, kind of explain its relation to this area, if you would. Well, okay, so we need to describe it in terms of the Grand River, uh, which is a tributary of the Missouri River. Um uh, the Bottoms, Fountain Grove, and Swan Lake all lie along uh, the Grand River. Um, actually, the east boundary of the Bottoms is only two miles from the west boundary of Fountain Grove. Now, Fountain Grove is a 9,000-acre uh, wetland uh waterfowl management area uh, belonging to the Missouri Department of Conservation. Then Swan Lake, I would guess uh, you would say would be another 15 miles down the river. It's a 12,000 acre national wildlife refuge. And um, it's been interesting uh, with the, the coming of um, uh, the Wetlands Reserve Program, now called the Wetlands Easement Program, Wetlands Reserve Easement. Um, all, all, almost all the land between along the river, between Fountain Grove and Swan Lake National Wildlife Refuge has been enrolled in the WRP. And uh, my goodness, that is a tremendous amount of habitat and even though we talk about the good old days, um, I believe that peak waterfowl populations in this area, but they even call it the Golden Triangle now, probably reaches greater peaks than it ever has in history. It's, it, it is almost, <clears throat> when you drive from Swan to Fountain, and, and it is, it's, it's almost along the river it's almost 100 100% waterfowl habitat whether it's you know whether it's bottomland timber and oxbows or low areas along the um the river or even just or or even the WRP and managed areas it, it is kind of impressive but to all that to say i was just wanting to let folks know that you know jeff is talking about Jeff is talking about this area of the bottoms. It's really not that far from where we hunt and and from this area. And that kind of ties in with Locust Grove. Whenever Ira and Aaron and Mark purchased Locust Grove, Jeff was, the way I understand it, a very 
uh, kind of the, the, the connection to make that deal go down. So how did that happen, Jeff? How did you kind of locate that property and kind of how did Ira, how, Ira, how did you get it ultimately purchased? Well, I had, um, I had a very close friend um, who had a um, kind of a similar game plan to, uh, to mine and that is to buy farm ground so that when we retired, the farm income would replace our, our paychecks. Um, at about the same time that I bought a big chunk of the bottoms, uh, my friend bought the ground that is uh, Locust Creek. And he farmed that for a number of years. And um, one day he told me, he said, you know, I'm just, I'm just so tired of fighting the floods and, and um, uh, the levee repairs and so forth. Uh, I think that uh, I want to uh, sell that farm. We called it something else then. I can't remember what we called it. Um, and I suggested that he consider enrolling it in the WRP, which he investigated, which he ultimately did. But um, it was no longer going to be, be an income producer for him, so it was surplus. And um, he decided to take the money, uh, the, the, um, the, the wetland reserve uh, easement payment, put the easement on it and sell the ground. Well, I thought, man, that will make a super uh, duck hunting place uh, adjacent to Fountain Grove. And I told Ira about it. And um, uh, I didn't do any of the negotiating, but uh, I, I at least hooked up my friend uh, with Ira uh, and Aaron. Uh, they made a deal. Uh, they actually... Uh, bought the farm after it had been enrolled in WRP. So they got it at a reduced price, of course. But the wetland uh, development or the West wetland uh, restoration had not been done. And um, so I kind of worked with uh, Ira and Aaron on that. I had some ideas on it. And, and um, we struggled with, uh, with uh, the NRCS, but uh, ended up with a good plan. So Ira, okay. So I, I mean, I have people tell me about farms for sale all the time. Uh, most of which I either try to act on and someone gets it bought uh, before me. So clearly this is an idea where you had an inside track on the property due to knowing Jeff and, and the owner and that kind of thing. But how did you, how did you get the money pulled together to do it? Or, or at this point in time, did you have some money saved up or was it, I mean, what I would just, I'm curious how did you facilitate the financial side of it? Good God, no. I was dirt. I was beyond dirt poor. Um, Jeff, you know, we had the option of buying it either enrolled or unenrolled. So uh, back then it was it was gonna be twenty five hundred dollars, maybe it was twenty two fifty it, it unenrolled, and WRP was paying twelve fifty. Well, we had no money. It's 420 acres. So, yeah, it was it, so we couldn't afford to buy it unenrolled. I mean, there was just no way. Bob made a sweetheart deal, 10 percent down, and then they would owner finance the rest. Well, heck, I didn't have, you know, so that means uh, it was going to take a forty two thousand dollar down payment. I didn't have forty two dollars. So 
uh, we asked my dad to be our partner and he was like, God, no, I'm not partnering with you two idiots. So then, then we scrounged around and, and, uh, uh, Mark Shoup said he would do it. So, uh, we were going to, we were going to have to, uh, come up with whatever it was a piece a third of $42,000. Well, I didn't have anything. So Kelly had a little house in Brentwood and somehow I talked her into selling her house because she had some equity in her house. <laughs> and that got me about two thirds of the way to where I needed to be. But, uh, but then she didn't have a house anymore. And, uh, and then I saved every penny that I had and barely came up with enough to, to pay my 3.3%. And, um, I think I was about two months after I was supposed to have it. I finally got it all together and gave it to Nancy Plummer and bless her heart. She had an, an opportunity to sell it for a lot more money to somebody that would have just written a check for it. And, uh, she said, no, Bob said that he wanted you boys to have it. And so I'm going to give you another six months. So she gave us another six months to keep, you know, finding all our rat holes with pennies in them. And, and we finally came up with enough, enough money to do the deal. So we got really lucky to get it and uh, kind of like the bottoms for Jeff. I mean, it's it just brings us so much enjoyment, um, not just from a hunting standpoint, but from a all around work life balance standpoint. And, and uh, it's just a whole lot of fun. And, and we spend a lot of time up here. So did did Mr. Plummer pass away during this transaction? He he did, yes. In the uh while we were trying to get our money together, um he he passed away during that period. So so yep. I just uh, we, probably uh one of the top things other than just general hunting questions and comments we get on this podcast is about land ownership and people are like, "Man, I don't know how you buy stuff or how did you get this bought or how did you get that bought or how do you even approach it?" Well, this is just goes to show everybody, you see these people that are veterinarians and in the medical field that have a property and they kill ducks daily and hold thousands and tens of thousands of ducks. And it's like, oh, how'd those people get that property? And people are like, oh, they're vets from St. Louis. Well, that is all most people would think. And that would kind of explain away how you put a property like that together. But what we've heard to kind of summarize is you got Ira, who met a friend at college, went up to his duck camp. His dad had a lot of insight and connections in the area. He just happened to know somebody that was tired of his farm flooding. Then he decided he's going to sell it to Ira and Aaron, but, but they don't have any money. So he's going to own or finance it, which is we're already knocking down dominoes that most, you know, that's a lot of dominoes to fall already. Then the gentleman dies. Somebody offers more his wife. I mean, it's almost like one of those, and then Ira was late on getting his money together. It's it's almost one of them deals is there's so many failure points. It must have been meant to be that it happened. But, you know, you guys, everyone asks, like, how do we do it? it? How do we get a farm bought? Well, I don't know. No one would have ever taken that route or thought of that route. So unconventional, <laughs> unconventional ways. It's unbelievable, really, if you think about it. Yeah, pretty cool. Pretty lucky. Yeah. I guess I'm hearing parts of that story that I had never heard before, but I blessed Nancy's heart. And Kelly's sold her yeah. house. We both had to move in with our parents for God's sakes. <laughs> but we got a farm. <laughs> but we got That's place. right. Well, so what what's kind of cool is Jeff um still comes up and hunts with Ira at Locust Grove 
and they've had some really good hunts. I've been on a couple of them. One of my most memorable hunts was whenever those decoys froze up in heaven, Ira and Jeff. And remember, we put them in the put them in the uh, oven to, to in the oven. That I was like, That's what in the hell? <laughs> that might be that might be more unusual than the story of how you bought the property. Uh, <laughs> they look okay. like they noble after that, that. Was ter terrible okay so uh, a, a quick aside on that the, the idea was the, the decoys are froze so ira's going to put them in the oven 14 dozen decoys in a timber hole and ira's uh, <laughs> baking them one by one to knock the ice off of them jeff you on the creek and watch them float down river <laughs> <laughs> you've um jeff you've no doubt had some great hunts at locust grove I do. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, um, uh, you know, I, I'd have to say that um, the heaven blind um, would be very near the top of the list for me. Um, I I think I've never gone there and not had a good shoot. Uh, we've had some good shoots at um, in the money hole and uh, uh, had a good shoot or two where we were just sitting in the mow marsh products uh out in the weeds so yeah it's in a good spot it's um yeah that worked out wonderfully and what i enjoy about it is everyone that knows ira that's listening to this podcast knows that he's got his idea that's usually what you go with even if he asks your opinion he's not listening to it but it's fun whenever jeff comes around because ira will listen to his advice so it's nice to see, or it's nice to see somebody having a little bit of pull with Ira. I, I always appreciate that, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, uh, let's moving on. Let, let's. It's so true, though. Let's um, let's talk about your work with conservation, Jeff, because I feel like we've got through an awesome story and we haven't even touched on most of it. I mean, talk about the conservation commission, and maybe I'm not phrasing that question right, Ira. You can help me out, but I want to hear about your time and, and your work in that in that realm. Well, you know, um, uh, through my love of hunting, I, I gravitated toward uh, the conservation side. Um, and and I, I've been associated heavily uh, on two ends, with the Missouri Conservation Commission and also with Ducks Unlimited. Um, uh, I joined Ducks Unlimited in... Um, 1968, I think. Uh, in 1972, we formed a chapter um, in in our little town of Chillicothe, um, and, and that was at a time when many big cities didn't have a chapter. We were actually one of the very first small chapters in Ducks Unlimited. I was the first uh, area chairman, and I went on to have a um, uh, a long volunteer career in the DU organization, worked my way from state, excuse me, state chairman, regional vice president, senior flyway vice president, um, uh, senior vice president in charge of their conservation programs nationally for six years. And uh, finally with, um, I, I had the, national secretary um in missouri the department of conservation oversight comes from a four-man conservation commission 
Um, the commissioners are appointed uh, by the governor. Uh, the Missouri Department of Conservation has a very unique constitutional authority. Uh, it's totally removed from politics. Um, the, the Conservation Commission uh, uh, hires the director. He's not appointed by the governor. The Conservation Commission makes its own rules. It doesn't, they don't come through the legislature. Uh, the Conservation Commission receives its own funds and does its own budgeting. Um, it, that does not come through the, the, the legislature. Uh, this all came about through a couple of uh, unique um, constitutional amendments. The first mm -hmm. in the 30s that created this uh, politics-free commission. And then in the 70s, a, a, a um, initiative passed the voters that dedicated one-eighth of one percent of the sales tax to the Conservation Commission. So Missouri is very unique in that regard. There's, there is no other wildlife state agency in the country uh, that has the authority um, that Missouri has, and, and overall, the commission has done a wonderful job. And, and um, uh, I was on the commission for um, six years uh, during the 1980s. Um, right now, uh, I'm the senior commissioner emeritus. Sadly, um, no one that served with me or before me is still around. But uh, I'm flattered that uh, I'm still close to the commission and department. Um, they confer with me from time to time, and, and uh, it's been very rewarding for me. Um, a lot for our state and for uh, Ducks Unlimited, and I know that a lot of the people who listen to this are very appreciative of that. As am I, and I'm sure Joe. We both are, yeah. that's for sure. Uh, uh, that I've gotten a lot more out of it uh, probably than I've given. It's it's been very rewarding. Um, on the Ducks Unlimited side, I mean, you know, those organizations, whether it's the Conservation Commission or the Ducks Unlimited, you know, angle of it, those those um those organizations obviously they're rely in large part to funding and different things like that. But at the end of the day, the people that are moving those forward, I mean, they don't go forward without some direction. So, you know, if you've ever even helped plan a DU banquet, you know how big of a deal that is or, or any kind of get together, you know, for a good cause like that. Imagine, you know, imagine some of the back end stuff that folks like Jeff are seeing on that. I, I know you did it out of a love for duck hunting. And I know that there was a lot of hours a lot of hours invested for the resource on your part. So we, we definitely appreciate it. Well, thank you. I, I, I want to tell a story here. Um, it's Turkey season and I want Jeff to tell us about his first Turkey. Cause I think it's a very interesting story. Well, my, uh, my first Turkey actually was, um, I believe the first legitimate Turkey killed in, uh, Livingston County, Missouri. Uh, in fact, it's kind of interesting that you asked that because 
you know, I got my first bird um, this season on the second day. So I've had a week um, uh, off and I decided to, I, I enjoy writing about my experiences. And um, so I decided to write and I, I, I think I started off thinking this was going to be kind of a, a like an essay length uh, work. Uh, and I'm up to well over a hundred pages now, but I, I'm, I'm writing about my turkey hunting experiences and my my uh, great memories, and, and I'm I, I have written a story about my first turkey. Uh, we didn't, you know. Um, well, Missouri started live trapping and restocking turkeys um, in North Missouri in the mid '60s. Um, and there were essentially none here, right? No, there weren't. That's right. The, uh, well, uh, ex exactly. Not in North Missouri. That, I mean, these all the birds that are here today emanated from those releases. And they came from those arcs? From South Missouri, yes. Um, it's interesting that they were live trapped with cannon nets for trapping geese on Swan Lake National Wildlife Refuge in, um, in the uh, 1940s. But at any rate, we finally got a season in Livingston County in 1972, and a coworker of mine and I decided to give it a try. We didn't know a thing about turkey hunting. And we, um, we went to a spot uh, that belonged to an airline pilot for TWA that lived here, that um, is actually now a part of uh, MDC conservation area, the Pusey State Forest. And um, we we were first given a, sev a seven day one, uh, seven day season started on a Monday as they still do, and uh, we hunted Monday and Tuesday with no luck, and um, back again on Wednesday, and. Um, weren't seeing or hearing anything and Wednesday was kind of a, a a nice warm day and I found myself dozing off and I finally decided to move up closer to the trail that he'd gone down for his stand and I I sat down next to a big hickory tree and pretty soon I was lying down and pretty soon I dozed off and I was awakened by uh, a scratching behind me and I assumed it was a deer but they were almost equally as rare but I didn't even bother to turn around to look <laughs> and I continued to doze off and it continued to move a little bit and pretty soon this scratching noise was out in front of me and I opened my eyes and looked and damn it was a turkey <laughs> and I get my my trusty shotgun my my uh, Remington 870 pump uh, in a half lying position was able to shoulder it and aim and and I shot the turkey so you didn't even call or anything it was not a classic oh no it was just absolutely blind luck would you have even know what a gobbler what a gobble was I don't think I'd ever heard one <laughs> I don't think I um but but the the, the truth of the matter is I went to retrieve that turkey. I thought, you know what? I never even thought to look to see if it had a beard. <laughs> God, 
has a beard. <laughs> and um, if I got there, he did. It was about three and a half inches long, but it was a, it was a Jake weighed sixteen pounds. And um, so I checked it in. They said they told me that was the second turkey that had been checked in on the county. Now this is uh, you know the third day of the season. And I said, well, who checked in the first one? And they said, well, Max Hamilton did. And, um, uh, and he said, it was a, uh, it was not an Eastern Turkey. It was a, a Rio or a Marion. Well, he used to have a, a um, shooting preserve and uh, they may have shot turkeys. I don't know, but I'm sure that the, the bird that he shot that morning was a carryover from his, his uh, shooting preserve days. And so I'm going to always think that I shot the first <laughs> legitimate legal wild turkey in Livingston County in 1972. He shot, he shot supposedly this Max Hamilton supposedly shot the first turkey in Livingston County. It was a Rio. There's never been <laughs> one shot since. <laughs> it wasn't white. It wasn't white. But interesting, Max was a good guy. And, and, um, he was one of the early pre national presidents of the National Wild Turkey Federation. Um, we just outed him. Oh, yeah. Butterball. He cared more about the wild turkeys than the tame ones, it sounds like. Uh, so on this doing, um, you, you know, I, I, I didn't want to ramble on uh, for thousands of pages, so I picked out, you know, certain of my most memorable birds. And, and of course that would be one. And my first mature gobbler, uh, my largest gobbler. Uh, I've got a couple stories in there uh, with Ira. Um, probably my greatest, probably my greatest turkey season. The one that I got the most enjoyment out of, I only killed one bird. And I killed that bird on the last Sunday of the first week. And I hunted every day for the next two weeks. And, I, you know, I was having lots of contact, but I just couldn't close the deal. And I had killed both his birds. And um, he offered to come and, and uh, guide me on, um, um, on the last Sunday. And I said, oh, that's great. So we did, and we we started off having exactly the same problem I'd had all week. Gobblers would get with the hens. There were too many hens. We had we hunted um, uh, another farm of mine, and we hunted the farm adjacent to it, which was also owned by by uh, Bob Plummer. Um, and um, so at about eleven o'clock, after we'd made two or three moves, and just weren't closing the deal. We got in the truck and decided to check out Plumber's Farm further south. And we saw some birds and pretty soon now it's 1230 and, and understand that shooting time's over at one o'clock. And so we're driving along slowly on this gravel road and Iris said, oh, I see one, I see one. And we we stopped and we were parked right next to a little cemetery. And he said, in this cemetery, I don't know, about 10 acres, and, and on the far edge of it was a tree line. He said, you go get in that tree line, and we'll call that bird up. And, you know, it's probably going to be 150 yards. So I'm walking slowly, 
uh, creeping in through this cemetery to get to that tree line. And when I'm about 10 yards from the tree line, a turkey flushes right in front of me and Ira yells, shoot, shoot, gobbler. I got my gun up and then I put my gun down. He said, well, why didn't you shoot? And I said, you know, this has been the greatest turkey season I've ever had. I've never gotten to hunt this many hours and I'll be darned if I'm going to end it by shooting a gobbler that I flush by blind luck rather than the bird that we'd called in. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> well, then I, story I wrote that involved Ira's. Oh, back in the mid '90s, Ducks Unlimited uh, started a TV show. They called it DUTV, and I did some shows for them and got to know the field hosts. And one of whom was a um, a, a really good guy from uh, Louisiana, and he loved the turkey hunting, and he knew we had turkey hunting up here. And he said, "What do you think about doing a DUTV show?" Uh, and doing a turkey hunt. And I said, well, I'd be glad to do it if it's all right with them. I thought they were on the stick with duck. Well, anyway, he got the go-ahead to do it. And I uh, enlisted uh, Ira and my son, John, Greg's younger brother, to guide the two field hosts. Well, it turned out that one of the field hosts' um, wife was having back problems and he couldn't come. So all of a sudden, instead of me being a support guy, I was either a guide, which would be a joke, or um, a hunter. So anyway, we made plans and day hunt, and it just worked out marvelously. The first day, uh, Ira guided um, the host to Louisiana. They hunted at the bottoms. We all stayed in the cabin. Um, the hunters, the guides, and the, the camera crew. And uh, the first day, Ira guided uh, the, the field host, Louisiana, and they had a great hunt. I, I think less than a half an hour, I had one fly right down. John guided me at another one of my farms, and um, we had a good hunt, and I shot a bird, shot a nice bird, and that put me out of business. I had two for the um, I had um, two for the season. John had two. Um, Ira had only killed one at that point, and the field hosts from Louisiana had um, just had one to go. So the second day, um, the plan was for me to guide Ira. Now that sounds kind of stupid, but uh, and and John guided the guy from Louisiana on another farm. Well, Ira and I had an awesome hunt. We went to a spot and um, uh, we had some action. In fact, we had one, the first bird flew down right behind us when it was still too dark. And we there was nothing we could do to get him on video. And so we just had to ignore him. And then we had a bird come from the creek about a quarter mile away across. And rather than come straight to us, he took the long route around the perimeter of the field. The cameraman almost ran out of battery. And that, that bird finally showed up at our little decoy and, um, and Ira got him. Yeah, that so, was some beautiful footage. I remember oh, those yellow flowers and it was really pretty. When we first spotted that bird, and, and again, I'm kind of remembering this stuff and because I've just been writing up these stories, but when we first spotted that bird, he was, 
was, you know, maybe a half a mile away across an open farm field. And um, uh, our cameraman put a, a, what he called a doubler on his lens so he could get some good um, uh, uh, video of him in a telescopic fashion. Well, as that turkey got closer, he forgot to take that doubler off. And when that turkey got within Ira's gun range, his head filled the whole frame. <laughs> when he was when he was about a hundred yards away, he was walking along, and there was a bug on a flower, and he, he grabbed it. And I mean, you could just see it plain as day uh, on the video. So it made a good show. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I didn't. Hey, why? About some of the old day stuff, Jeff, tell the story about, because, you know, a lot of the people that li live here in Missouri and we're blessed to have so many deer and turkeys nowadays, tell the story about, about the deer that you guys saw. Hey, I, oh, I looked at that. So, um, when I first started when i first started hunting there weren't any deer we never saw any. we never saw any tracks and i can remember just as clearly as if it were yesterday the first deer that that i saw um it was in over our christmas break from college in 1960 my girlfriend at the time she's now my wife we've been married 61 years and I were home from college on spring break and we're going to have dinner at a supper club in the town, next town, north of Chillicothe. And as we were driving up there, a deer ran across Highway 65. And that was so unusual that we considered canceling our dinner plans and coming back and talking to the newspaper and the radio. <laughs> now we can't even plant a tree in our yard. It, that, that's unbelievable. Yeah. It, it, it shot a turkey this morning and was was almost right next to a deer. You can't you can't step which one way without the other without scaring a deer anymore. Yeah. Well, okay. Here's a question we have from a a listener of the podcast, I put up that we were going to have you on today. And uh, Ira, here's one from Brad Hobrock. Uh, his company is called Four, Cur Four Curl Waterfowl. He makes duck calls. I've actually got one sitting on my desk right now. He makes great duck and goose calls. I got one of his and then one of Josh Ditch's calls, both sitting here, and they're two of my favorite ones I got. But anyways, that's an aside there. But Brad Hobrock, a guy that Ira knows and has known for a long time, <clears throat> he asked for Jeff, Jeff, what are the biggest – what is one of the biggest changes that you've experienced in the waterfowl world since you've been doing it? He, he was asking, you know, good or bad, what are, what are a couple of the biggest differences and changes that you, that come to mind? Well, you, you know, I, I did a, a podcast with some other guys and that very same question came up and I answered it at the time. And after the show, uh, I thought, you know, I could have I could have answered that question better, and and so what is the biggest difference between duck hunting, let's say in the 1950s, uh, and in the 2000s? 
All right, here's the difference. Back in the old days, everybody who hunted ducks had a duck blind. And that's where they hunt. And if the ducks came that day, good deal. But if they didn't, you were out of business. Today, I think that the biggest difference is the mobility, the ability for hunters um, to get on the X, to get under the ducks and to be hidden. And so we have, uh, we have these walk-in areas at the wildlife management areas, Missouri Department of Conservation is very big on walk-ins. Uh, we have these firms like Mo Marsh, and we have these innovators like Ira McCauley that have come up with these, these, um, these boats and these blinds and the lay down blinds and sit down blinds where you can actually disappear. So today, uh, hunters are just not relegated to hunt that one spot, their one duck blind. Uh, they're mobile, uh, they're observant, um, they study the ducks, and um, they get under them. So to me, that's the biggest difference. Well, so, the technology, you know, I mean, golly, you can just look at, you know, your phone and say, well, the wind's this way today, and ducks are here, and I should go oh, there. There's, yeah, sure. Our weather forecasts are so much better. Uh, you, you know, you, you, the, the difference in clothing is uh, we're so much more comfortable on the nasty days. I mean, like I said, used to be a pair of blue jeans and a hooded sweatshirt and an army fatigue jacket, uh, and you were dressed to go hunting. So, so Ira, you, or Jeff, you mentioned the Momarsh. Ira, didn't you build or work on some of your first stuff up at the bottoms or at Jeff's? From Omarsh? Well, the boats, we certainly did. Um, and, and Jeff helped me a bunch with the boats when we were making the molds and designing them and building them and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, he, he was incremental in, in helping that. And, and we did a lot of our testing uh, there in the in the very early days. You know, we did our, some of our testing at the bottoms and we did some industry. You stuff. know, Ira, I think if, if, if we can all read. I think Momarsh has kind of a classy little uh, logo, the one uh, with the guy that's on the fat boy boat uh, pulling it. I really believe that that emanated from a photograph yeah. that you guys took um, with you and John coming back from hunting in uh, Old Pool 2. Yeah, Clay did that logo. He did a great job, Clay Connor. And that's the second podcast in a row where someone mentioned the cool Momarsh logo that we don't, it, we need to get back to using that more probably, but uh, it is a, it is a cool logo. And Jeff, Joe probably doesn't appreciate you making fun of him because he's still duck hunts and jeans and a hooded sweatshirt. Oh, and that's about yeah. it. I, well, I, talk about the fat boy boats. Um, Ira has always told me that they were named after his father uh, who's not quite as fat as I am. So, um, <laughs> that. but yeah, I, Ira may not even know this, but, um, you know, I have a couple of the original boats that came from the first mold 
that was made on a wooden plug that Ira and I made in my shop. And I still have two of those boats. The fit and finish is not very good, but but they were the concept. Uh, and the concept worked. The, the boats were light. Uh, the, the boats pulled well. Uh, everything about them was good. Well, I recently took two down to the cabin and I had them displayed down there. I saw the picture. Oh, you saw the picture. Yeah. yeah. Oh, they're really cool. Yeah. So, so, okay. Jeff, you've been doing this for how many duck seasons? I mean, you could probably tell me the number. How many duck seasons now then have you spent at the bottoms? Well, of course, we, we bought the first 120 acres in 1972, built the cabin in 1973, Got electricity to the cabin in 1974. So, and, and I had hunted an adjoining piece of ground uh, two years prior to two or three years, maybe 69, 70, and 71 with, with uh, my friend, the neighbor. I now own that piece of ground. Uh, so, how many years is that? That's uh, more than 50. So, where I'm going with that is I'm reading an article, Jeff, right now. <clears throat> that the Kansas City Star did um, in the outdoors section, and it was about you guys and your opening day hunting tradition. I'm sure you remember them coming out and doing that. Um, in there, I mean, in the last 10 years? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, I remember that. Brent Frazee. Yeah, yes, yes. And in the so copies of articles from back in the 70s when the outdoor writer at that time, Gary Warner, he used to come up every year and, and to open the season with us and write, write a story about hunting at the bottoms. This, we this, have a framed on the walls in the cabin. Well, this recent one, Ira, I know you've always commented this, Ira, when we talk about, you know, during hunting season, talk about who's killing what or, you know, daily kind of, hey, who got what or who saw what or who's doing this on their property in the off season. And I know you, <clears throat> you've always commented like, man, I, you know, it's just crazy. Me and you have both talked about it a lot. You know, Jeff has been doing it for so long and is still every day out trying to find a way to make things better or implement new holes or, uh, you know, fix up his hide or train a new dog or get new stuff on his property. I, I think that's the coolest thing about Jeff's story. Not necessarily, I mean, everything he's done in the past is awesome, but in my uh, opinion, all the ducks he's killed, all the places he's gone, and we haven't even hit on the bucket list hunts, but all the places that he's gone and stuff that he's done and at his age, and he's still out trying to actively make his property better for him and his family. In this article, there's a quote. It says, it's Jeff, and it says, he's always said that there are two seasons, duck season and getting ready for duck season. One's too short and one's too long. And there's a photo of, of Jeff and John and Luke Jeff, I want to talk a little bit about why and what drives you to continue to keep working on these properties and, you know, how much of your life you've committed to that. And then also how rewarding it is to be able to hunt with, with your family and see your, your sons and, and grandkids, uh, John and Greg's kids really enjoy it. How that has to mean, that has to mean a lot to you. Well, um, yeah, I, 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 can't, I can't say what drives me, but I, I can tell you that notwithstanding the fact that, that we've owned at least parts of the bottoms for 
50 plus years, I still come up with new ideas. And in fact, I was down there the other day um, and we, we had a tube that was plugged up um, and we couldn't figure out what the problem was or what to do about it. But anyway, we finally got it unplugged. But while I was there, I was looking around and I came up with a hell of an idea. I won't go into it, but, you know, even after 50 years of, of knowing every square inch of that property, uh, there are still things we can do. And I, I, I'm also amazed, and this has happened on multiple occasions, that my grandsons, uh, and particularly my grandson Riley, come up with brilliant ideas. And I think, why in the world didn't I think of that? Mm -hmm. And um, so we can always make things better. Um, and of course, that what that's what makes it fun. Absolutely. And, you know, it seems like it seems like Luke has been going on several of these trips with you. And I kind of want to hit Jeff, what spurred the what spurred your bucket list trip ideas? And how did you how did you get the idea to do those? Is that something you'd always thought about doing? Or did you just start kind of going on a trip here and there and then decide to put the list together? Well, you know, uh, with my experience in DU, um, uh, I got to hunt at some really neat places. So uh, even before I dreamed of my bucket list, I had probably, uh, uh, I, I had probably completed several bucket lists, but <clears throat> I don't know, kind of make a long story short. Somehow I got, involved in writing and i really enjoy writing about my experiences and i don't know about 15 years ago i wrote a long book in fact i tell everybody when i give them a copy that it's guaranteed to uh, cure any insomnia that they might have um but it was a it, i called it duck fever um and it was uh, just basically my duck hunting memoirs and I went through you know all the types of hunts I'd been on and where I'd been and who I'd met and, and when I got down toward the end of the book I, I on my last two chapters I, I my next to the last one I articulated my top 10 hunts now if you can imagine somebody who's been hunting for over 50 years it'd be pretty hard to to pick out your top 10 hunts, but I had a little system and, and I did it. And my final chapter, I said, you know, if you stuck with me in this book this far, you probably think that I've hunted everywhere there is to hunt. And I know everyone who duck hunts, but I'll tell you, there's still a lot of places I want to go. And I called that chapter, my bucket list. And I listed the 10 hunts I both most wanted to make before I have to hang it up. Um, and I have no idea when I'm going to have to hang it up, but I'm, I'll be 83 next time. And, and I still feel great. And I'm thankful for that every day when I get up. But anyway, no sooner had I listed these 10 hunts I wanted to make, and they could either be at, at a famous, um, at, at, a, at a famous duck club. They could be in a historic waterfowling region uh, they could be a hunt to shoot uh, a species i'd never shot or they could be uh, a, a chance to hunt in a different method that, that i've never hunted 
And, and so I, I, I had these 10 hunts and no sooner I written that chapter, I said, damn it, I'm going to, I'm going for it. And I did. Uh, and in four or five years, I, I knocked all those hunts off. There were some duck clubs I got into that I have no idea how I got that done. And then I wrote a book that um, was called My Bucket List. And I wrote up about all those hunts and I wrote about, about how I selected the area. I wrote about it and how I lined the hunt up. And, and, and then I wrote about the hunt itself. And it made a nice little book. Well, hell, when I got done with that, I thought, man, there's just, I still feel good. And there's still a lot of places I want to hunt. So I made a second list. And I said, I'm getting older, so I better get these done a little quicker. I, I can't take five or six years. And I knocked them off. And I wrote a second book. Well, guess what? I did it a third time. And I, I, I articulated 10 more hunts that I wanted to make. Um, and, and I've done seven of them. And this fall, I'm going to do the last three. And I'm going to write a third book. In fact, I've, it's practically written. It's all done except for the, these next three hunts. And is there going to be a bucket list for? No, there isn't. I'm pooped. <laughs> so Jeff's talking about his writing. And uh, I can't make a single complete sentence. So, I, you know, I have a lot of respect for that. But the people that know Jeff know how incredibly smart and talented he is. So uh, years ago, not that long ago, maybe six, seven years ago, I was talking to Jeff about uh, a big project that we had for Habitat Flats and we needed to write a big prospectus. And and uh, so Jeff said, well, I can I can do that for you. And so he asked a few questions to me and he asked some of the other guys some other questions. And I mean, like two weeks later, I get a 120 page prospectus that goes through. I mean, no pebble left unturned. I'm like, it's a book. I'm like, this is the craziest thing. So I go to my attorney and we're talking about it. And he goes, well, I'd like to see that prospectus. So I gave it to him. He goes, so like five days later, he finally got through and he called me and he goes, who wrote that? And I go, oh, a buddy of mine. He goes, no, I mean, who, is, who wrote that? that what does this guy do? I'm like, oh, he was a civil engineer. He's like, no, I'm talking about who wrote that prospectus. I'm like, <laughs> civil engineer. He goes, that that's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my whole entire life. And I'm like, yeah, he's a pretty amazing guy. I mean, you know, so then he decided to whip one out for the kennel. That took him, no, oh, just maybe seven days for that one. And I think it was, what, about 100? You, you kind of skimped on that one. It was about 106 pages. I mean, Real. He, he's uh, that's literally the next point I was going to make Ira is and I'm glad you brought it up but the next point I was going to make was okay we talked about the conservation and uh we we've I mean we don't have the three days that it would take to talk about all the connections and people that Jeff knows or that he's been a part of in the industry it's it's unbelievable we're trying to skim through here but I wanted to make sure we talked about from a business standpoint because a lot of people that listen on here are are business-minded folks I don't know. He did one for a project that Greg, his son, Greg and I were working on in Arkansas on a company there. And he did that. I swear. I'm, I'm sure it took him a little bit longer than I think, but it, it seemed like in the matter of a night, he had it written up and the end. He just understands business so well, because 
he can take a, an idea for a startup. If you give him the parameters of what a business is, and I, I'm not, and I know you're not looking for work, Jeff, and I'm not trying to hire you out. I'm just saying what he can do is un. I've never seen anything like it in any business thing that I've done in college or any deal that I've ever looked at. It, Ira, what I was going to ask you was if you could shed some light on just how unbelievable that side of Jeff's mind is, but you you did a good job of that. Well, you know, it's funny. I can take Jeff hunting with anybody and it doesn't matter what they do. If they're a ditch digger or an equipment operator or an astronaut or a brain surgeon, they get to talking. And, and before you know it, Jeff's telling them all of the in, 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 intricate details about their job. And they're like, what is going on with this guy? I mean, <laughs> did he fly to the moon i mean it's just crazy because you know he gets talking to somebody and it's like how does this guy know all this stuff it's it's strange well, it's one, great one lesson i think we can learn from jeff ira you can back me up or not on this but you know he's got a lot of experiences and a lot of depth and breadth of field in a lot of different industries but one thing i think is interesting about him and i know i can take it I can take it uh, a lesson on it. And, and I know some other people can too. Like you said, regardless of what the person was dealing with, if it was the president of the United States or the, the lowest wage job in the County, one thing I think is interesting about Jeff is he will ask questions about that person, about things that relate to what they're doing and uh, ask a question so he can better understand. That's probably why he's so smart, but he, he can make, he can make a lot of folks feel like, he takes an interest in what folks are doing. I mean, look what he did with you, with Mo Marsh and with your businesses and things like that. You know, there was probably a better use of his time that he could have been using for his own personal gain while he was working on the Mo Marsh boats and prototyping and all that stuff. But I don't know how he has the hours in the day for it, but I think one lesson we can learn from Jeff is you can be a servant to others and to the resource and to different organizations and still put together a pretty impressive business resume and properties and friendships and all that stuff. So, I guess I just wanted to hit on how well-rounded I feel like he is. And I think that's because he genuinely takes an interest in so much stuff and so many folks. Yeah. It's kind of funny, you know, guys, they, they all, all, all guys, all hunters, you know, they love talking to Jeff and, and all that, but the only people that I ever saw really nervous around were, uh, were all of our girlfriends when we were growing up we'd bring them around Jeff and they'd be like oh my god I'm gonna get the Spanish Inquisition again he's gonna ask me if I cook and if I do laundry and if I have a house <laughs> and those were the only people that I ever uh was around that were were nervous around Jeff because they didn't want to disappoint disappoint him when the Spanish Inquisition came well every now and then I, I run into one of those little girls and, and it might be a a waitress in a, in a restaurant and I'll give them my credit card and she'll look at it and she'll say, uh, Sharan, um, do you have a cabin? <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to keep this podcast clean. So we'll spare some of those details. Jeff's poor cabin. <laughs> I think that cabin got a lot more use than I ever knew. <laughs> you knew, uh, uh, Abin, but I'm sure they had a thriving business. <laughs> the uh, story about one of those scouts. The okay, Jeff. Also, you know, you don't just have the place in Missouri, but your camp down in Arkansas is one of the cooler 
settings for a duck camp that that a guy could have. I always really enjoyed staying there whenever I would hunt with Greg or when we would come down to do Momar stuff with Ira. Um, when Greg and I were working on some projects there in Arkansas and going over there in the evenings for dinner and stuff, kind of describe that camp and how did you get how did you come about that camp and and how did you get started hunting in that area of Arkansas with your farms and leases and stuff down there? Well, I started hunting in Arkansas in the 70s, and, and um, our company was blessed to have a nice airplane, and I knew how to drive it, and and so nothing to run out the airport and be in Arkansas in a couple of hours. Um, and I always wanted to have my own place down there. I belonged to a club or two over the years, and and uh, so when Greg moved, uh, uh, his business took him to Little Rock. Uh, we we seriously started looking, and and he actually found this place. Um, it, it's uh, uh, on an Oxbow Lake, uh, right off of the White River, uh, a little east of Stuttgart. And um, our backyard is the uh, one hundred and sixty thousand acre. White River National Wildlife Refuge. Um, it's just absolutely a gorgeous place. Um, and for us, and, and my wife loves to go there. We, we spend um, about a week every month down there. And then I spend all of January and sometimes the uh, uh, latter part of December if we've frozen up here. So um, although we don't, Unlike at the bottoms, we don't hunt right there where our camp is. Uh, we have some leases and uh, belong to a couple of clubs down there, but uh, it's very nice and uh, it's been very enjoyable. And, I, and I'm very thankful that, uh, and I'm making this point in this new book I'm writing, that I'm very thankful that my wife has been so supportive of, uh, uh, of the money we spend doing this and, and the time it takes. Gosh, I take so many road trips in a year. So she's been very tolerant, very understanding. Of course, we, we reciprocate. She's in Hawaii right now. I have kids in Hawaii. And uh, they're probably out there fishing right now. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm, I've been very lucky. Now, did, did Janet, did she enjoy hunting, Jeff? No, she's not a hunter. Uh, she's she's never been, doesn't want to go. Uh, she supports uh, her husband and and her sons and her grandkids a hundred percent. She loves to um, prepare wild game and to serve wild game, and no one does it better. Um, but no, she does not hunt. Um, uh, my daughter doesn't hunt. She fishes a little bit. I have two granddaughters. Um, who've duck hunted a little bit, but they're both big time fishermen. Um, Luke's twin sister is a is a, a very good fly fisherman, and my granddaughter in Hawaii is um, she and her husband actually um, um, own a couple of um, of uh, Hatteras Forty Ones, and they run a charter business for deep sea fishing, and she also guides in the summer in Alaska for Pacific salmon, halibut, rockfish, uh, stuff like that. So um, in fact, all six of my grandkids are outdoor oriented. Uh, 
I, I tell I just, you, age of picture. In fact, I, I need to get a picture of Ira from him uh, in this book I'm writing with uh, with uh, both my boys and three of my grandsons, all with uh, big turkeys that they'd shot. The I, I can't speak for all your grandkids and kids, but I know I've hunted with Greg and uh, just of somebody that is a very good hunter. Uh, I'm throwing this in there because Greg's one of those guys that he's just going to get it. He's going to get it killed. He's going to get him killed. He's a really good hunter. I assume he must've picked that up from you, Jeff, but he's one of the, one of the better hunters that I've probably hunted with. Uh, If I had to put a list together, he would definitely be on it. Well, yeah, everybody wants to hunt with Greg and uh, he's very serious about it. He's very calculated. Um, He gives a lot of thought and, and he's an enjoyable guy to hunt with. Of course, I've hunted with him. I, um, I was with him when he shot his first duck. I was with him when he shot his first goose. And um, we've had many hunts in between. Where did where did he kill his first duck? Crescent Lake. No, uh, oddly enough, it's um, it was a little lake that's kind of been obliterated now. Uh, it was called Jackson Lake. Um, and we were walking to the blind and we spotted a, He was like six or seven years old. We were walking to the blind. We spotted a duck on the water. Uh, we're able to position Greg. By golly, he shot it. And it was a redhead hit. <laughs> that's all. That's awesome. And you, you've kind of got, you've been, have you been with all of your grandkids? Uh, have you been with your grandkids on their first duck kills as well? Um, you know, I can't remember uh, about Jake, but I was with uh, both Riley and Luke. Um, I, I, I know I was with Jake when he killed his first mallard, and it was banded. Um, <laughs> but I might have killed another species um, uh, before that in Arkansas, and, and I wasn't along. Is it you, Jeff, that has a tradition with your grandkids when they get their first goose? Do you have a tradition with them? About yeah, it? I, I told um, I told my grandkids that when they shot their first goose, I'd give them a satori, and um, and I have done that. Now Lily has not. Lily's killed ducks, but she hasn't killed a goose yet. Uh, but. Uh, Riley, Luke, and Jake all have uh, have satories that they uh, they earned uh, when they shot their first goose. Well, if you ever look to adopt any new grandkids, I have killed a goose before. So Ira has to. Uh, no, Ira, what's something I want to I want to make sure that we get all the questions asked to Jeff that we that we want. I feel like I've covered a good part of what I know. Is there anything else you want to ask him? Oh, shoot. I mean, I golly, I've been hearing the same stories for a long, long time. I could probably tell them myself. Um, but no, I mean, you know, I, I'm glad that we were able to get Jeff on here. He's just been, you know, he's such a wealth of knowledge and, and talent and, uh, you know, has a lot of insight into a lot of things. And, you know, I told him that our podcast was meant to be inspirational to people to, you know, take risks and try to be in charge of their own destiny and uh for sure 
um, he played a large, large role in, in me making my convoluted path, uh, to where, wherever I am now. And so, you know, he could probably, I'm sure that I'm not the only one that he's inspired to, to go and, and, uh, you know, not just be doing a nine to five job and living paycheck to paycheck. So. So I, I want to say, I want to also kind of say, because we, we're looking at Jeff, who's put together a great body of work. And, you know, at this point in his life, he's still out chasing uh, new memories, new opportunities, ducks, geese all over the world. Jeff, from just a strict, like a big picture side of things. So, so you know, folks ask about the investment side of things. And so you had a job, you know, a, I'm not going to call it a job, a career, a company. Has the plan worked how you had hoped that it would when you set out to buy your farm ground, um, hoping that to have it paid off and, and be a nice income source for you? Has that plan worked how you thought it would? Oh, I, Joe, I, I would have to say that uh, it worked much better. Uh, so, you see, I was looking at farm ground as an income producer, right? Yeah. You know, I, I, I wanted that, that cash rent check uh, to replace my paycheck. The thing that I don't think I gave as much thought to is the appreciation. Um, the appreciation of farm ground is just absolutely unbelievable. Um, I mean, we don't need to go into the numbers, but you know, I told you I bought that first 120 acres for $20,000. What is that? $167 an acre. Um, and you bought it at the right time. I mean, that was in the eighties. There were, there was some bad stuff that happened, right? I assume you, you bought well, your farm ground after, you know, all the, well, you know, crash. farm ground, uh, uh, you know, back in the mid seventies, we had a, a, a siege of when soybeans went from two dollars to twelve dollars, and farm ground went from two hundred dollars to as much as two thousand dollars. And uh, you know, my game plan called for starting to, you know, up until age forty, save all the money I could so I could have a little down payment on these farms, uh, buy them at age forty um uh be able to pay the mortgage um and the taxes and the insurance with the cash rent um and haven't paid off in 20 years and then i could retire well darn it 1980 uh we uh, the landowners still remembered 12 dollars soybeans but yet cash rents were were less than a hundred dollars, you know, farm ground was cash renting then at like $70 and, and, and the asking price on good tillable ground was 2000 an acre. Well, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that doesn't work. So I, I just, I, I couldn't make a deal in, in, in 1980. Well, it's even worse now. If you, if you compare the price tillable ground to your cash rent to, to the, well, you know, I hear some astronomical cash rents, but I'm not getting them. Um, but you know, I, I'm 
I have a I have a upland farm that we manage for quail, and my my uh, a portion of it's enrolled in, in, in CRP, which is different than WRP, and it's an annual rental. Um, and and um, one of my contracts is going to expire, and I um, offered it up for re-enrollment, and I was absolutely amazed at what the CRP rental payment available on that farm would be if it's accepted. Um, and th this is a hill ground. This is not prime bottom ground. It's good farm ground, but it's it's nothing like the bottom ground. And the they calculated my maximum rent would be $226 per acre. For now, CRP. I paid $350 an acre for that farm. I mean, at this rate, I could pay for that farm in a year and a half. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in that in that crazy. I mean, good. I mean, but you know, guys, like when we when you look at how land pencils out, and I know it is different now, and it's not like I'm out buying all this tillable ground because I'm not. So I'm not saying that, but you know, you hear all these people say, and a lot of them are right, but a farm will sell, and people oh, I didn't make any sense, or and I'm sure there was still there was people saying that back when Jeff was buying his farms, or when your grandparents were buying their farms, and and the times are definitely different. But I always look at it in the fact of at a certain point, especially in rural America and really at a large scale, but even in rural America, the landowners have the power in small, in, in small town USA, they've got the power to utilize their ground for recreation. They have their uh, power to utilize the ground for income as a borrowing source for collateral or uh, via collateral. You, they have so many things. And then when you look at how things have appreciated or you look at how programs change or you look at maybe a pipeline comes through or maybe a wind farm or a solar farm comes through, I guess what I mean to say is when you're looking at a farm, if you can make it work, a lot of folks have scraped by to make it work. And when you have the land, there are a lot of unforeseen benefits that could come with it down the road. You know, Jeff's talking about, I'm sure at the time, because because he just said it, when he bought his ground, he had to kind of wait and call his shot and pick his spot where he could afford it to where it made sense. And, you know, I'm sure making that down payment wasn't wasn't the most fun thing he ever did. And now look at and now look at what some of his stuff's worth. So, you know, it's hard to foresee all the factors and all the things that can come through land land ownership, but there's just so many benefits of it. It's just it's hard to get involved in. But but there are a lot of benefits, and even some you might not know. Well, so uh, so my plan worked, uh, and I'm happy with it. Uh, I couldn't be more pleased. Now, now my my boys come to me and say, "Well, now, Dad, um, I understand what your plan was. Um, is now a good time for us to do the same thing?" And and I say, "You know, I am not sure." You know, if 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 we're talking today's cash rents are in the two hundred dollar area, and um, gosh knows what the ground's selling for, but it almost sounds like Ira. Would you agree with me if uh, we said four thousand dollars an acre for good tillable land would be a bargain? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone knows better than Joe, but you know, most of the stuff that you look at now, they're shooting for a three percent return to pay cash. Yeah, and, and you know that's been upset here recently because uh, interest rates have risen. Yeah, you know, um, I have a I have a fabulous um, relationship with a lender, uh, uh, 
and I don't mind telling you who it is, and that's Farm Credit. They have an absolutely wonderful product. And um, I did some logging on one of my farms the other day, and I was absolutely amazed at the income that that produced. Um, and I took that check out the Farm Credit uh, and um, put it in the, their equivalency of a savings account. And I was surprised that I get 4.5% interest. Now, you know, I spent my whole business career hoping for low interest rates. All of a sudden, and, and I didn't get that. Um, when I retired, I wanted high interest rates, right? Mm -hmm. And until now, I didn't get it. I mean, you know, I have CDs that are like 1%, um, but that's changing. And um, so, as I say, I got four and a half or five percent uh, out of farm credit the other day, and I was absolutely amazed. And and I know one of my friends, uh, another good friend of mine, who, who who feels like farm ground's a good investment. He's he's told some realtors, "You find me a four percent return, I'll buy it." And he's got some cash. Uh, but now I don't know if. Um, you know, there are some uh, municipal bonds that are paying 5%. Um, uh, and pretty soon, they, I think there are going to be some special CDs that are going to be uh, at that level. So these guys doing it for 3%, probably having some buyer's remorse or second thoughts. Better have some cash. I know that. <clears throat> yeah, but Jeff, you, you got, you've already got the bottoms to hunt. Some of these guys that are doing it for 3% are looking for a duck hunting spot. They can't hunt on a CD. <laughs> well, no, I'm I'm just joking, but it it's every situation is different. It, it, it's it, it's a wonderful deal to have my paycheck come from my playground. That's a that's a pretty cool you way know, to put it. When I was younger, Jeff would always say, and I think it's so true. He'd say, "Well, you know, if you invest in in a recreational property or a farm." you know, you can go there and have some enjoyment. And he goes, you're not going to have any enjoyment of your money being in the stock market. And uh, there's a lot of truth to that. i tell you a kind of amusing story. Uh, Janet and I were at the cabin one night, sitting out on the porch. Um, and um, she'd been at Bridge Club that day. And um, she says, you know, at Bridge Club today, some of the gals got to talking about their husband's investments. She said, I didn't enter into the conversation very much, but she says, you know what? I sure enjoy sitting on the front porch of my investment. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And that means you got that means you invested in a good wife too, Jeff. You got one that's saying that. That's pretty awesome. Uh, for sure. Well, I mean, guys, I thank everybody for for tuning into this and without getting too, you know, long winded, I just want to say that, you know, Jeff is one of those guys that if you talk to folks in the waterfowling community, a lot of folks know Jeff either by knowing him or by take making use of or benefiting from some of the, the contributions that he's made to, um, to conservation, to habitat, to ducks. Um, you know, it's one of those podcasts that you look at and you're like, man, that was a that was a great voice of 
experience and somebody who's done a lot of stuff and and to have him on the podcast is definitely one of my most enjoyable discussions that we've had ira i'm I'm assuming you probably feel the same way oh yeah for sure and you know one thing about jeff is he's always so objective and so level-headed and so even keeled and rational and uh you know especially back in the old uh internet forum days remember those and man, people just be ripping on MDC or whoever. And Jeff would make a post and it would be, you know, just an, an objective uh, statement of this, that, and the other, not, not emotional, not, you know, anything other than respectful. And, and usually the, the naysayers would, would shut up and people would come out of the woodwork to making such a thoughtful post, you know, so yeah, and he's just always kind of been that way, no matter what it was. A great sounding board uh, for anybody that knows him. If you guys, if you guys do check it out, check out the bottoms on the the bottoms on the Facebook page. Uh, Jeff shares a lot of cool stuff about hunting season, but he also shares a lot of cool stuff about. I mean, <laughs> he just kind of slipped in the part that he was a pilot, knew how to fly an airplane. I guess that. I didn't know that either, but he can also carve decoys. He's got decoy collection out of this world. Um, if you want to follow along with it, it's definitely a good way to get yourself through the off season. It's really insightful stuff and just kind of cool stuff to look at. So Jeff, uh, you know, I've said it, Iris said it, we really appreciate what you've done and, and, and uh, you coming on the podcast and, and sharing some of it with us. Well, it's my pleasure. Glad to do it. Well, everybody, we appreciate you tuning in. Looking forward to uh, what you think of this episode and let us know. And uh, if you have some questions for Jeff, get with us and uh, we'll get them to him and, and he'll come up with a dang good answer. I'd be willing to bet. So thank you guys for tuning in. Have a great day.